You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Tonight, 2 Peter chapter 2 this evening. And we're going to look at the first nine verses together as we resume our study in the book of Second Peter. It worked out last week we had our praise and pie service, and I appreciate all of you who contributed to that. It also allowed me to cheat last week with my voice, and uh, looking forward to being back in God's Word tonight here in Second Peter 2. But I trust that that service and that your week uh, has just reminded you of God's goodness, and uh, grateful that we can gather again around His Word. Second Peter chapter 2. And let's begin in verse number 1. So chapter 1 is all the glorious truths and God's word is great and God's been so good to us. And now in chapter 2, we deal with some hard truths that every stable believer must. Let's begin in verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Notice verse 2, and many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason, we'll define that word in just a moment, pernicious, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. 4, verse 4, if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon a world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them in sample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. He concludes in verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. So we've been looking at these truths in the book of Second Peter, solidifying truths that help us be stable, be consistent, be grounded in a world that's just in turmoil. And so tonight, we want to continue by looking at this, solid condemnation. One of the best ways that we can be stable as a believer is to condemn false teaching. And that God has to help us with that. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his help tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege it is to gather around it again tonight. Thank you for each of these dear folks that are here, their partnership in the gospel and in your call in our lives. Um, just good to be in your house today, Lord, and to be with your people and to gather in your name and know that you're with us. And we're just, we're, we're floored when we really consider it. Um, what a privilege that is. We thank you for how your spirit moved and worked in our midst this morning. I pray that you would do that work anew and afresh tonight. Thank you for these students of your word that have made your house a priority again tonight. Pray you bless them for that. Help me, Lord, to be a good steward with their time and to give your truth, nothing more, nothing less, and allow your spirit to make uh, the difference. Thank you for your goodness. Bless this time we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
can I ask you now as we begin, do you have some place you would love to travel to? Um, I don't know where it is. For me, other than the plane ride, I would love to go to Australia someday. That's always been on my bucket list. Every um, project when I was in school, do a project on a country. It was always about kangaroos and aborigines, and I just, I, I just, I thrived on that. The boomerangs and all the stuff that just comes to your mind. And hey, mate, you know, I don't know, I can't do it, but all the, just that culture. I, I've, I'm fascinated by that. Um, one of the things I'm scared about though is by the time I get to go there. Um, I don't know if you're like me, I'll be, I'll be so, you know, run down and exhausted, I just won't have the energy to, to go there. The other day someone posted this picture, I don't know if this is a real picture, but this just cracks me up. This is why you shouldn't wait too long to travel. I think this is in Venice somewhere, but the caption was, don't wait until you're too old to travel, because this is what happens, you're going to fall asleep on a boat that you paid thousands of dollars to float around on where we just, we, we've run out of the energy needed to enjoy the moment. Can I just say to you as we begin tonight, one of the primary reasons for instability in our lives is that we've mellowed, we, we've kind of softened in areas that we shouldn't be. I've noticed as I move through life, things that used to be a big deal to me, eh, you know, I mean, some things bother me still, but I, I can kind of just step away from it a bit. And if we're not careful, that tendency trickles into our relationship with what we need to stand against, what we need to stand up for. And because we're losing that sometimes as we move through life, we're also becoming unstable in areas that God has required us uh, to take a stand. So we're going to talk about tonight here in verses 1 to 9, things that were condemned by Peter, by, by God, that you and I must share in in the areas that God has given us influence. Just to give you a quick synopsis of what brings us to the day we're in today, in um, 8313, there was an edict called the Edict of Milan. That edict was instituted by a man named Constantine, who was at that moment the, uh, the, gov uh, the um, Caesar. He was in charge of the Roman Empire, and he legalized Christianity. And what was view <laughs> viewed by many in that moment as one of the greatest moments for church history actually was one of the most detrimental. Because what happened is the lines between the world and the church became blurred. Um, and that has always been a battle. It's always been a struggle, but especially at that moment and moving forward in church history, we see that often we have been infiltrated not by outsiders, but by insiders who have diluted our doctrine and watered down uh, the things that we should firmly stand upon. What I love, though, is that Peter here in 2 Peter 1 says it wasn't in 313 A.D. that this phenomenon began. This has always been a struggle for the people of God as outside influences and, more importantly, inside influences have sought to uh, sidetrack, uh, if you will, God's people as it relates to doctrine. Um, Alexander Hamilton was once quoted as saying this, if you uh, don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. What, what do you stand for tonight? And what will you stand against? That, that often defines whether we are consistently as stable and secure as God intends us to be. So the question tonight is this. In a day of so many lines being blurred as it relates to doctrine and teaching, um, how do we make sure that we allow God's condemnations to be clearly accepted and conveyed to those that God calls us to convey them? All right, let's talk about two of them in the time we have left. Number one, let's talk about some prophets or personalities that are condemned in the few, first few verses of uh, this chapter. 
Now, just to remind you, because again, and I know I've reiterated this over and over, but much of the chapter divisions in our translation are, are not a part of the original text. And sometimes if we're not careful, though they're a great tool, they create artificial boundaries around what's in that chapter. This is a letter. Go back to the previous two verses that precede chapter, uh, verse 1 of the chapter we began with. Go back, to, if you will, to verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, man, notice this, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And that now sets the table for him calling out those who were not holy men, those who were giving private interpretations. And, and so we have to notice there's a distinction between faithful prophets, faithful uh, followers of God and those uh, who are not. And may I just say this as we begin, much of your stability depends upon you being able to identify the difference. Can you tell me today in our day who are the false prophets? Who are the faithful ones? And are you letting this book be what defines that? Because if we're not careful, the, uh, the YouTube followings and the online presences, listen, there's so much I know outside of this immediate congregation that influences all of us in this room. And if we're not careful, we're letting these pseudo-prophets move us from a place of consistent faith and doctrine. All right, let's talk about a few things as it relates to these prophets that Peter so resoundedly condemns. Number one, jot this down. Allow God to verbally identify mixed doctrine. The first area that we see condemned something associated with prophets who are condemned is that they are espousing, they are promoting what is mixed doctrine. Go back to verse 1. There, excuse me, there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false prophets among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So we see this blending of teaching. I mentioned this morning that Heidi had the idea of us having a Christmas tree with half Michigan, half Ohio State this year. Um, and yesterday, it didn't feel so festive at about hmm, 12.30 on, basically. As most of the boys in the room, we had uh, Stacy and Joshua Lehman, their son Brendan was there, Caleb, John and Christine's boy, um, Carter, the Moore's boy, um, and then Ian, who are all rabid you know, Ohio State fans, and then Landon, who was born in Michigan, and he had a Michigan hat on and a hoodie, and I thought, as the game went on, this kid may not live. I mean, he may not survive this moment. It was trying to take two views of, of the universe and put them in the same room during that game. And it was interesting just to sit back and observe the, the male testosterone and all the bad calls and man this and man that and you know, just the, the dynamic of that. Can I just tell you, as it relates to teaching, you cannot take faithful teaching and false teaching and blend it. And what I think we often do if we're not careful is say, well, they have a few good things to say. Not everything they say is false. Not everything they're teaching is wrong. But the moment you take holy and unholy and you blend them, it's not the holy that scrubs up the unholy. It actually is the other way around. And so we have to make sure we're very careful not to follow those who mix truth and error as we see being uh, condemned here in the text. Um, you notice at the beginning of verse number one that these false teachers are not outside of the church, they are in the church. Did you see that? Who privily, uh, there's a subtlety here, shall bring in damnable heresies. They're not storming the gates, they're <laughs> infiltrating the church from the inside out. 
This is what makes them so dangerous. That's why the peril of false teaching in the church is such a lethal uh, attack against the church. It, they don't come out and say they're atheists or they're agnostics that would put us on guard. They, they use Bible terms. They carry a Bible. And, and they're familiar with the jargon and they weave into that these false uh, teachings. It's interesting to me that Peter says here there were false prophets. I think referring back to what he mentioned in chapter 1. But he says there shall be false teachers among you. And may I just say this tonight, and I, it's hard for me to process, to be honest with you, but North Life is not the exception. We have to be very careful not to think, well, our church, everybody here is orthodox, everybody here is faithful, begins with a common, it begins with someone that gets a little bit of influence. We must be very careful to guard against that which is false teaching. And you notice in verse number one that it goes on to talk about that they deny, so they they bring in these heresies that deny. Did you notice that? Even denying the Lord uh, that brought them. And so we see this, this idea of they deny, they deny, whether it's the virgin birth or um, the infallibility and, and authority of the Scripture or gender or sin itself, whatever it is, but they deny things that God has clearly taught. I think the best definition of heresy is simply this, denying anything the Bible clearly teaches on. I reject something the Bible says. That's heresy. Let's call it for what it is. It's not, well, it's a new day and we need to understand people and situations. Uh, it is uh, heresy. And so may we identify it as such. And then lastly, <laughs> verse 1, notice it says they deny the Lord. This is interesting. That bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. What is meant by that? The false teachers are bought by the Lord. May I just say tonight, we must be very careful <laughs> to differentiate between being bought by the Lord and being redeemed by the Lord. Um, the analogy I would give you, or the illustration would be, remember in Matthew 13, 44, um, you could look at it later on your own time, where the Lord Jesus is pictured as a man who sold all that he had to buy a field. In verse 38 of that same chapter, the field is distinctively said to be the world. So it shows us what the picture of this parable is. Uh, and so the Lord obviously offers to all his salvation. He has bought the world with his blood, but he only redeems those who, who repent of sin and accept him as Savior. What the Bible says about their sin, what the Bible says about Jesus being uh, the only Savior. And so this crowd gives a head, nod to, a head nod to that teaching, but they've yet to receive it personally. There's just subtle shifts. And this would be maybe... Practically, what I'm navigating as a pastor on a regular basis, things that we use, things we identify with as a church, trying to be very careful to not associate with false teaching. Someone said this to me recently. I think this is profound. Churches often change convictions without formally renouncing views to which they were previously committed. Listen to this. And, the, and their theologians usually find ways of preserving continuity with the past through reinterpretation. So it's not, typically what happens in the church is not, you know what, We're, we don't believe in the virgin birth. It's just, you know what, there's something else to help us interpret that better. And so we never abandon the truth, we just add something or tweak something. And that is often how within the church, false teaching gains a toehold. And so we have to be very careful to identify that as such and be willing to disassociate from it. Do not tolerate mixed doctrine. You're in 2 Peter. Go quickly back to James, would you, for a moment? We studied this book 
primarily in our parking lot a couple of summers ago uh, in our drive-in services. For those of you who are like, what are you talking about? Study this in the parking lot. James chapter uh, 1, <laughs> and if you would, please quickly, verse 5. And it connects this idea of stability and being double-minded or instability and being double-minded. Go back to chapter 1 of James, and if you would, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, abradeth not, he doesn't withhold that, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Notice verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Can I say this to you directly tonight? For those of you that don't think it's a big deal to maybe tolerate, if you're not careful, mixed doctrine. The greatest instability is possessed not by the belligerent rebel against God, it's the double-minded believer. We're claiming we believe this, but we're tolerating this. And as we let that in, it creates an instability, a double-mindedness, all because our doctrine is convoluted. Do not tolerate mixed doctrine. All right, go back to our text now in verse 2. So number one, we see these prophets condemned because they're identified as those who teach mixed doctrine. Number two, look at verse two. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Number two, jot this down. Allow God to verbally rebuke carnal doctrine. So mixed doctrine would be the first hallmark or um, evidence of a person who is a false teacher. Number two, they would teach that which is carnal doctrine. Um, we had uh, this week uh, several down days, our family and my wife and I rode together. And I think I've told you before about her, over, in my view, overreacting when a car's slowing down in front of me. I mean, I got this. I see it. You know, I'm still, you know, I got six inches to spare here. Um, and she, you know, tapped my arm. But anyway, she's, she didn't do as much of that. We had several good car rides, and she gave me room on that. The other day, someone was talking about how, you know, people overreact when you have a mistake when you're driving. But somebody said this, please don't ride with me. If you're going to grab the dash or scream every time we run off the road, it makes me nervous. <laughs> Would you stop that, okay? Um, do you know as it relates to doctrine, when we get off, when our flesh takes us off, what, what are the teachers around us, what do they say? A faithful teacher will challenge us. They will not, it's okay, or I understand, or they'll not be accommodating and and if you will, accommodating, they, they will challenge us. And the false teacher gives us convenient truth. It gives to us that which appeals to our carnality. And so that's a way to identify a false teacher. In verse 2, notice that Peter predicts they will attract a large following. Did you see that? And many shall follow their pernicious ways. Um, I, one of the questions I hear more than any other is how, how many are in your church and, and numbers it's, it's numbers numbers I'm not saying numbers don't matter but numbers often are an indicator in the opposite direction that our flesh tends to evaluate ministries or prophets or teachers or those that are claiming to be faithful to the word of God it's at least possible to have a large following and to not be leading in the right direction is that not indicated in the text I'm not also saying if you're in a big church or someone leads a large ministry that they're unfaithful. I'm just saying we should never say large is good and small is bad. There's, there's seasons in church history where the opposite is actually true. And so maybe we'd be careful not to look just for a large following. 
Um, and so they, they gain this following by losing biblical standards of morality and encouraging the, the indulgence of the flesh. Now, the word pernicious that's found there is the same word we see translated several times in our Bible as lasciviousness. It's just sensuality is the idea here. And they use the senses. They appeal to the, the feels, if you will, is how we would say that in our day. And they play that to their advantage. Now, I would like you to hone in on verse 2 where it says, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 16, notice that Peter is emphasizing this word follow, how important it is that we follow the right things and the right people. Back in chapter 1 and verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Do you see that? Go back to chapter 2 and later in verse 15, we'll get to this next time, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam. And so who we follow, it matters. And if we follow those who appease and appeal to our flesh, we're not going in the right direction. Um, I think we ought to regularly <laughs> feel rubbed the wrong way, as we would say, under faithful teaching. We ought to feel like our toes are stepped on. There ought to be some friction that even sometimes rubs us again the wrong way because it's, it's challenging us through a faithful adherence to the Word of God. Um, one author I was reading said this of false prophets. Listen to this. This is good. False prophets can al always be identified by their converts and their followers. Think about this. They, a false prophet, will attract to themselves people who have the same superficial, self-centered, and unscriptural orientation as they do. And so I, I would challenge you with this thought. Look at those that are influencing you and judge them based on who's following them. By their fruit, you will know them. By their followers, you will know them. And so may you be willing to admit, you know what? This leader, this loud voice in our culture, is, is those drawn to them are very carnal people, very fleshly people. And I, I choose to disassociate from that kind of influence. All right, notice the end of verse 2. He says, by reason of whom them doing this, appealing to the flesh of their followers, by reason of, of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. As a result of <laughs> this kind of leadership and behavior being taught and practiced by the false teachers, the way of truth is maligned. Um, I don't know that unbelievers mock and, and resent our faith on its merits as much as we who represent it. And I kind of touched on that, didn't I, this morning with the story of Gandhi and other ways where I would be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. And it is carnal Christianity, it's the, the easy, it's the go-with-the-flow kind of faith that is actually producing the deep contempt for Christianity that's in our culture today. There's no integrity to our message. Um, and it's almost the opposite of today's study this morning where we talked about our worship. It engages, it enlists the world, it draws attention to God. Our, our following false teachers and following fleshly leaders undercuts the message of our faith. And so we must be faithful to uh, what God has given to us. Um, <laughs> it's interesting, back in verse 20 in chapter 1, if you go back there for a moment, it talks about this private interpretation. If we rely on someone else or our own private interpretation of the Word of God, that if we're honest, is not built on Scripture, it's built on tradition that's fleshly, maybe in a legalistic way, or it's built on a trendy way that's very license-oriented in a fleshly way, if we're building our teaching on a private interpretation, it will facilitate our flesh. 
But when it's a godly given revelation, what were these men described at the end of verse 21? They were holy men. And so may we follow those, may we identify with those, may we who do teach the word of God be faithful to be found in that uh, category. Fleshly teaching and doctrine leads to instability. Spirit-led, holy teaching leads to greater stability. All right, verse 3. And there's a third and final identifying characteristic of these who are false teachers and condemned. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. I love how that's worded there. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Thirdly, jot this down. Allow God to verbally expose exploitive. Exploitive is the word there, doctrine. <laughs> Allow God to verbally expose exploitive uh, doctrine. In verse 3, we see these false teachers are greedy, both in a sexual way and a financial way. They're using people. They're manipulating people for their own lucrative ends. Their aim is to build up a large following that we referenced back in verse 2 and thus to increase their income. They're not just about the crowd. They're about all the perks and the profile that goes with that crowd. The platform that provides the kickbacks, the, the benefits that come with uh, such a following. And here we see clearly the words make merchandise of you. They are exploiting people with specifically feigned words or false words. They're saying whatever it takes to get these folks to follow them. Um, one question I would encourage you to ask regularly, I hope you ask this of me as well. Why are they teaching me? Why are they preaching the word of God? What's the heart behind it? What's the why? If the why is anything less than God's call and God's mission and God's message being communicated, that is a false teacher. If they're monetizing you, if they're marketing you, if they're constantly selling you on stuff, no matter what else they're saying, there's a falsehood there that must be uh, disconnected from. And so this, this camouflage message that behind it are <laughs> these corrupt agendas and morals, may we distance ourselves from them. And to follow them leads to great instability. Um, it, le it leads to inconsistency in our walk before um, the Lord. All right, notice the end of verse 3. He says, as a warning, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. We see that God gives here the condemnation of what awaits these false teachers. Their judgment has not been idle. It has been arming itself for the slaughter, is the literal translation of that of this phrase here the destruction has not been nodding its head in sleep it has been wide awake ready to pounce by the way not just on the teacher but on those ones following them you follow someone you go where they go right you experience the brunt of the consequences of um, these uh, that you are following and so may we distance ourselves from them not just because they're exploiting us but the consequences of what they're doing um Nana, uh, Heidi's mom and I were talking at Thanksgiving the other day. She's reading a book about the Titanic and some of the backstory, some of the unique stories that they should have known. The icebergs were there and all the details, the, the, the things that they cut corners just to get the boat in the water and everybody on it in the set time, all the, the ways that that uh, tragedy could have been avoided. And I, I recently was reading <laughs> as well some parallel thoughts on that. And one of the interesting things was this. This just shows you how human nature has not changed. You know, we look back, you know, early 1900s, those were the 
back when people, you know, there was just a regality and a formality and a, just a high culture kind of feel, and yet they were just as selfish and corrupt as we are. But one of the stories that came out of it that I read recently was after the Titanic crashed, the ships that were sent to recover uh, the bodies of those who had unfortunately drowned, that as they were doing so, they ran out of embalming liquid to, to preserve these bodies. Have you read this story? And so as they would work around the shipwreck and all the, the, the wreckage that was floating and the bodies and everything, it was all wrapped together. And as they began to, to disconnect and to recover these bodies into these boats, they began, because they had ran out of embalming, I mean, this is not right off the shore. You know, this is way out into the ocean. They began to choose those they would put in the boat and take back based on their economic stature. And by very shortly into the recovery process, they were only taking first-class passengers who had somebody waiting back arguing over the will, the estate, were some of the only bodies that were really fully recovered and uh, provided for the families. And at the same time, just kind of pushing away from the boats, these lesser people. Can I just give you a challenging thought tonight that I hope you'll take to heart if you subscribe to someone or follow someone? I don't know, you know, I don't want to pick on your sacred cow, but whatever voice you listen to that has a program that's funded by a lot of money (laughs) that you're paying for, those who will tell you what you want to hear are not doing it for your benefit. They're doing it for their own. Do you see that? Do I see that? And that question of why are they teaching me and why are they preaching to me? Why are they sharing something with me? What's the why? And as we answer that question, it will help us distinguish who are false teachers and who are faithful ones. Realize the one telling you what your flesh wants to hear is not doing it for your benefit, but for theirs. Own that, uh, acknowledge that, and take it to heart. All right, so this application will move to our second point tonight. Only with the help of God's word can we not be swayed by and misled by these false prophets. They're so subtle, especially those within our ranks. Those within (laughs) possess the potential to create instability, great instability in our minds, hearts, and lives. This is the reason why we have to keep growing in our faith through the faithful prophets that God has placed in our local church. So I just want to, maybe the positive side of this would be this. Often the way to preempt or to distance yourself from false teachers is to get closer to those who are faithful. Can I give you a quick example of that? And this is not me trying to, you know, hedge in on the influences in your life. Whatever you give me permission to, I will. But those of us who God has called to pastor and teach, go to Ephesians 4. Can I connect this real quick, this dot of who we listen to and the stability that produces? Just one example of this, Ephesians 4, and if you would please, verse 11. So we have stability because we are willing to condemn false teachers, disassociate from them, and then the positive side would be then to more closely align with those who are faithful, those who are not mixing doctrine and exploiting with doctrine and teaching that which is carnal doctrine. Look here in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he, Christ, gave some apostles, some prophets, prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Then if you will, go down to verse number 14, all right? So, and they're to perfect us and edify us, all that's listed there. If we avail ourselves of these gifts to the church, notice that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with the wind, with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Do you see that connection? 
So by identifying with faithful teachers, as you're choosing to do tonight, I trust, and as we all do in our lives throughout the week, we're actually distancing ourselves from that which would deceive us and toss us and carry us away. And I love, again, I've mentioned it many times, that we be not children. Do you notice that? Carried about, uh, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men. The world knows their doctrine. They're men. We cannot be children when, in that which is the faithful teaching. We have to grow. We have to mature. We have to stabilize. And that is only possible through uh, those that God has put in our life who are faithful. And so may I encourage you uh, to look at that in your life as a priority. All right, number two. Let's go back to our text and spend the balance of our time in a second category of condemnation. Verse 4. And this is all to reinforce the end of verse 3 where he talks about that their judgment is lingering not and their damnation slumbereth not. He's now going to use these illustrations to reinforce that. For if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. All right, number two, let's talk for a few minutes about the portraits. So we basically have now, if you can visualize in your mind, an art gallery, and God's hanging up a few examples of where false teaching leads a person, where it leads a culture, where it leads a family, where it leads a church. And these portraits are meant to be a warning to us uh, that we would <laughs> distance ourselves from that which is false teaching. Um, the other day I came across this picture. Um, I don't know how many of you are uh, into Van Gogh. I'm a huge Van Gogh guy myself. I'm just kidding, okay? This is by Van Gogh. Uh, it's called Still Life with Bible. Um, and this struck me. This just illustrates the battle we face in our day. Uh, but in October 1855, at a time when the society's views on the nature of biblical authority and human freedom were evolving, or devolving would probably be the way we would say it, and subject to change, Vincent Van Gogh, the wildly talented yet tortured artist, completed an oil on canvas entitled it, it's the one we're looking at here, Still Life with Bible. Looking at it, one observes a table, and upon the table an open Bible. To the right of God's word is a candle burned out, standing in its holder. In the foreground, the artist has painted a small yellow book, and you probably can't see it on the slide tonight, but the print on the binding of the original is still legible. It is Emile Zola's book entitled The Joy of Life. And here was the, the imagery behind this painting. By placing a burned out candle beside the Bible and by putting both in the background, Van Gogh is telling us that the time for walking through this world by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, who shines down upon God's <laughs> word, is past. Biblical authority no longer holds sway. People are guided by different, if not lesser, lights. That is what he is saying. Even the flaming color of yellow is now reserved for the cover of another book, Humanity's new pursuit is governed by whatever brings us the joy of life. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're closing this and we're pursuing just what do we want? What do we enjoy? What, what, what will bring us pleasure? So Peter here gives us in the word of God, more importantly than Van Gogh, these illustrations of where that leads when we just follow our hearts and our flesh at the expense of of truth. And may I say this before we look at these portraits? I think a lot of our instability as the people of God is we just want what we want. We're going to do what we want, and we don't care. And we want voices that accommodate that, voices that even validate that. 
We have a way we want to do life. We have a way we want to do the rest of whatever we have. And I want to do it my way. We would not say it that way. And because of that, there's a gnawing insecurity uh, that sets us up for all kinds of abuses and excesses and failures in our walk with the Lord. And so may these portraits tonight, as we work our way through them, challenge you uh, to distance yourself from that which God condemns. All right, let's talk about a couple of them quickly. Number one, allow God to visibly rebuke unfaithful rebels. So we see some rebellion, <coughs> rebellion that is referenced here in these illustrations. Number one, allow God to visibly rebuke uh, those of us and others around us who are unfaithful rebels. The other day I saw, I haven't confirmed this story, but this cracks me up. You know what I mean by um, you, you turn in, like you, you have a trip or something and your company's paying for it. John knows all about this. Just kidding. Um, and you're, you're turning in, here, here were my travel expenses. The other day there was a, a, a burger place in Toronto, I don't know if you saw this story, that made news. Because what they did is if you walk in their restaurant, they put up on the menu board, like they have burgers, like pictures of different burgers, but instead of like a number one or a giant whatever, a triple bacon whatever, they actually named them after office supplies. So the, the couple that I saw in the picture, one was, so this is how you, so you can expense it out and your boss doesn't know that you actually bought a huge expensive gourmet burger on the company's dime. Do you follow where I'm going? The two that, that jumped out at me, one was, I'm I kidding, it was like this cheeseburger and the name of it was a mini dry erase board. Uh, I'll take a mini dry erase board and yeah, I'll take fries with that, you know, and, and the other one was an ergonomic aluminum laptop stand. Like the burgers are named after office supplies. Isn't it crazy how we twist things? I'm not saying I do, but you may do that if you went to that burger shop. You just, it, we, we, we find ways around the rules. We find ways around uh, what is right or what is wrong. And Peter here gives three examples of the destruction that comes when we do that in relation to God. The first one is mentioned in verse 4 that we just read. Did you notice it? For if God spare not the angels... Number one, we see rebellion through autonomy. I think I gave you these subpoints. Rebellion through autonomy. The angels living independently or autonomously from God. <laughs> one of the things that scares me when I read that verse is these are the same angels that heard the holy, holy, holies and saw God in all of his glory. And they still were convinced by the devil himself that it was better to do their own thing. May I just lovingly challenge you, you are not the exception to following, falling prey to false teaching. You're, you're not, and neither am I. What I'm reading, what I'm listening to, what I'm around, what I'm influenced by, it all matters because I can easily be misled if these angels uh, were misled. And so we see them living in autonomy and all of the consequences, as we know, that came their way. How incredible tonight to be reminded that the road to hell is paved by some angels who knew what it was like firsthand to have life in all of its fullness in the presence of God. They just chose to live in autonomy. I don't know if autonomous vehicles are going to be mainstream at some point. I hope not, to be honest with you. I'd rather scare my wife just for kicks now and then. I, I like having control of the vehicle that I'm in. But I will tell you that autonomous Christianity will never be, from God's perspective, a thing. It will never be mainstream. It will never be uh, what we need and what God wants for us. We, we must be connected to Him. We must be connected to uh, one another. 
want to authorize reading, and I know I'm preaching at the choir when I say this tonight, as we would say, but being a part of the church also involves going to the church, <laughs> going and gathering, and by the, you know what I mean, we're meant to gather, right? Um, one author I was reading said this, if you pull the thread of the local church out of the fabric of the New Testament, you no longer have a New Testament. The local church and, and gathering and being connected, it's, it's a way to sanctify our thoughts and not to get off in a bent or in a, a kind of quirky direction theologically. It checks us from autonomy that leads to rebellion. All right, number first five, a second area of rebellion manifested, and spare not the old world, but save Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness bringing, notice this, in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Number two, rebellion through apostasy. The word there is apostasy. The ancient world had unraveled. Started with Adam and Eve, and they walked with God, and here we are just a few chapters later in Genesis, and they're way off. They have apostatized. They have moved away from what God had called them to, <laughs> to do and be. So we see this apostasy in Noah's day. He lived among them, he preached before them, and they mocked and they ridiculed and they rejected until the waters came. Isn't that an amazing portrait to think about? I, I know I've talked about this recently just because I've been at, at the Ark exhibit there in Kentucky and other things, but just that scary moment as the waters began to rise and as they would cling to the highest point and God's wrath and what he had warned them of came to pass. They thought they would be the exception. They thought they would avoid the consequences. By the way, I don't know if you've thought about this, there were teachers besides Noah in this day. I was just thinking about this, maybe in, because of this text, but do you think maybe a few others were commentating on the situation as Noah was conveying one narrative and message and all the voices that were countering that? These people weren't processing this just individually. They were probably thronging, and they were there were, there were platforms and places where Noah and his God were mocked. There were false teachers in this day that convinced the people they were okay. And they, they lived and they ate and they drank and they married and they drowned because they followed that which was false. It's a big deal to apostatize from what God has called his people to. So may we be willing not to look for those teachers to convince us we're okay when we're actually not. All right, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, here's the third portrait of Sodom and Gomorrah, into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. Thirdly, rebellion through immorality. Rebellion through autonomy, rebellion through apostasy, rebellion through immorality. I was sharing with our deacons tonight in our finance meeting, a um, friend of mine who pastors in Michigan, uh, Brother Tim Christensen, that's been here for our anniversary Sunday and preached, he was sharing with me a couple of the people in his church who are in the medical field and law enforcement were saying that this past Wednesday has slowly become known as Blackout Day. Last Wednesday, the Wednesday <laughs> before Thanksgiving, just a few days ago, in the United States, from what I have been told, I've not verified this, but from what I've been told, is the highest alcohol consumption in 24 hours of any day in the year for the United States. As people know, you know, maybe family coming up or other things or just being alone, but they're processing all that's going on. Let's just drink myself into a stupor. And our world is often doing that, inoculating and, and, and insulating itself from the realities of that around us, and often they do so through 
immorality. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I don't know if you've ever seen, and God help us all not to be this, but I was told by a pastor, a seasoned pastor recently, why does a pastor commit adultery? Why does a, a pastor commit fraud monetarily? Why, why do spiritual men and women, why do, they, why do they do something so immoral? And one of the points the pastor made I thought was valid. He said, often a pastor will do one of those things because it's the easiest way to get out of the ministry and never be asked to do it again. Immorality is an out. It's often a way to disassociate from things we don't want to associate with. And we see this rebellion on the part of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, the immorality, the defiance against God. And as we know, God dealt uh, with these cities. And so Peter paints this this fast and furious picture of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and all that they navigated because of their sin. A warning, as you notice there in verse 5, bringing upon the world... uh, the flood upon a world of the ungodly. Then notice the end of verse 6 as an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. It's a warning. It's a warning. The word burning that's found here, the idea of burning them to ashes is used only here in the New Testament. It literally means to reduce to ashes. Peter here is concluding that's what God does with those who live immorally. God will reduce them to ashes. That is the end. No matter what some teacher says, this is God's word. You're in Second Peter. Would you go to Jude for just a moment? It's interesting because most commentaries will include First and Second Peter and Jude together. There's a lot of parallels uh, between Jude and First Peter and Jude and Second Peter. It's an interesting tension that I haven't been able to mention much. But just this one takeaway of a parallel. Look at chapter uh, at Jude in verse seven. <coughs> Jude in verse seven. Jude references this same issue in these same cities. Jude, and if you would please, verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, notice this last phrase, are set forth for an, for an example, suffering uh, the vengeance of eternal fire. And so in one sense, this, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one of God's greatest gifts. It's, it's, it's a warning. It's a warning. Um, one of the things I've noticed in our culture, we just keep lowering the bar of deviancy, don't we, to feel better. Well, what used to be deviant or immoral, well, let's just lower the bar so we can all feel better about our culture. And we keep backing away from the standard, the absolute standard of God, of what is moral and what is immoral. And without God's word, we're tempted to feel uh, that our immorality or the immorality of others is the exception. And I just want to remind you tonight, immorality is immorality, and it has consequences. I don't care what teacher says otherwise. God's Word says there are consequences to immorality. Whether it's you or it's me, it's your kid, it's my kid, it's your neighbor or my neighbor, immorality leads to things. And we live in a day where teaching is telling us otherwise. May we distance ourselves from that as we see Peter admonishing us to do All right, let's lastly go back to our text and end with these last couple of verses, beginning in verse (laughs) 7. Number two, jot this down. So allow God, first of all, to visibly rebuke unfaithful rebels. Let him deal with them. He'll do that in his time away. You just keep your distance. Number two, allow God to visibly rescue flawed believers. I love this part of, of the story here because I often, I at least look at Sodom and Gomorrah, I at least wander into and am 
sometimes influenced by false teachers. What provision does God give for those of us who have those flaws? Allow God to visibly (laughs) rescue flawed believers. And first we'll look at Noah in verse 5, and then we'll go down to verse 7 and look at Lot. These two believers that weren't perfect, but God was able and willing to rescue them. Uh, Before we look at that, um, the other day I was reading an article that was talking about what is called the world's quietest room. It's found in in the Orfield Labs in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, This lab, this chamber is so quiet that you can hear your own organs after you've been in there for 30 minutes. Uh, Immediately you can hear your own organs just as your heart beats and everything's processing just as you live and breathe, all that goes with that. And after 30 minutes, it's so quiet, you begin to hallucinate. In fact, the longest a person has ever stayed in that lab is 43 minutes. And it's just, it has padded walls, it has things that absorb all noise, it's just the quietest space on planet Earth. And I know for me that when I stop and think about false teaching and all these things that we've talked about today, I recognize not only is it within our church, it's in me. You catch that? Do, do any of these things resonate with you when you really get personal, and especially when you start talking about looking at a woman is the same as committing adultery, hating someone is the same as killing them? Like the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law? I, I'm convicted by the list of things we just went through. I live in autonomy sometimes as it relates to God. And so God, in the midst of this reflection, provides hope for us as believers that stabilizes us even despite our flaws. And I'm grateful for Romans 8 and verse 1, there's therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, right? So so we have that freedom. How do we lean into that? Notice, first of all, number one, the belief that God gives through preaching. That would be Noah. So God delivered Noah because he was faithful to believe God, and he believed God. He manifested that belief through preaching. Did you see that in verse 5? Save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. And so we see that Noah, the way that he countered the false teaching of his day, the way he kept himself stable and consistent, was he preached what was true. Can I say to you tonight, the way that we battle the world and all of its falsehood, just like with counterfeit money, is not knowing all the counterfeit versions of our currency. It's knowing what's true. It's knowing what a real dollar bill looks like, a 20, a 50, a 100. Or a thousand. Wait, they don't have those. Okay, but you know what I mean. The ones that are real, we know what those look like, and we're emphasizing that. Our job is to preach what is true. One of the reasons we're unstable is because we're passive in our world that's on the offensive. My question to you tonight would be this in your home, in your community, in our church, are you preaching righteousness? We, we can't just not associate with what's wrong. That's not enough. We're still losing ground. We have to stand against untruth by practicing preaching. And so Noah preached, he preached, he preached. As he built the ark, he was faithful uh, to preach. And so this, this painting and the portraits, if you will, God gives here, gives us hope that God can still use us uh, in our day. The best way to deal with the faithless and the false teachers of our day is to go on the offensive by preaching and teaching the truth of God. Are we doing that? Are we faithfully a part of that process in our ministry? All right, then if you will, verse 7, and and delivered, so he delivered, he saved Noah. There's a second gentleman mentioned here, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Number two, belief through righteousness. 
And if you would go on in verse 8, he says, For that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul. There it is again, from day to day, with their unlawful deeds. Belief through righteousness. Belief through preaching, God delivers us through that as we navigate false teaching, number two, through righteousness. The same God who visits destruction on the ungodly rescues the righteous. And Peter here illustrates this by the experience of Lot. I don't know about you, when I read the Old Testament accounts of Lot, I don't know without this text if I would say he's a believer. I don't, to be honest with you, when I read the text, he looked after the well-watered plains and he pitched his tent and then he's actually a ruler, a, a mover and shaker in the city of, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But here, Peter is clear on this operation of the Holy Spirit. He was a righteous individual. Uh, he had put faith in Jehovah God. He had received this relationship that God had freely offered to him. But Peter here stresses, despite all that he was going through and facing, he was still righteous. Can I just say to you tonight, one of the things that keeps me grounded in a world that's so wicked and so creative in their deception is I've been declared righteous. I don't need you to tell me I'm right. I don't need you to tell me I'm wrong. I have a Bible that does that for me. I'm a sinner, and Jesus is the only Savior, and I've been declared righteous through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's a stability that I think often we're not living in light of through the false teaching that's all around us. Well, look at our culture, and look at our kids, and look at where things are going. We're righteous. And Lot, with all that vexed him and all that frustrated him, he had a position of righteousness before God. Are we living in light of that as we navigate our world today? Verse 8, notice that Peter here emphasizes that he was righteous in spite of the appearances and the mistakes that he made. It was positionally offered to him through the grace of and mercy of God. And so the word deliver that's found here in verse 7 and the word deliver that's found in verse 9, God is able to deliver uh, the believer. May we be willing to live in light of that for his glory and honor. All right, lastly, number three, jot this down, belief through repentance. Verse 9, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. Lastly, God gives deliverance to those who believe through repentance. And I think Peter here in verse 9 is almost starting to talk autobiographically. He's thinking of his own failures. The fact that he doesn't deserve God's deliverance, and yet God is able to deliver the godly, those who've been declared righteous out of temptation, out of where that will lead. Just as God did it for Peter, he can also do it for us. Just a thought tonight before we close. You notice there in verse 9, he says, The Lord knoweth. Notice he identifies this one who saves, this one who delivers as the Lord. He alone is the one who can deliver us from temptation. He alone is the one who can punish those who are ungodly. And so tonight, what doctrine we choose to follow is the pigment that will paint our eventual and eternal portrait, either a distorted, repulsive caricature of what God originally intended or a glorious masterpiece of his grace and glory. It is your choice. It is my choice, and much of it is the result of who we follow. Um, the other day I was reading this as we finished tonight. An author said this. I think this is good. It's challenging to me. He said, It's possible for real Christians to be taken in by false prophets. When believers are careless about study of and obedience to the word, lazy about prayer, and uncritical about the things of God, it is easy for them to be deceived by someone who pretends 
to be orthodox, especially if he is pleasant, positive, and permissive. Great sequence there. When that happens, they are in danger of becoming grapes on thorn bushes. He's referencing some parables of Jesus. Grapes on thorn bushes and figs on thistles. And then this statement challenged me. Satan loves to use God's own people to promote his evil work. I don't want to be found in that category. Do you? Therefore, who I allow to influence me largely shapes that. I don't want to allow Satan to use me, one who knows God, doesn't deserve God and His grace, but I have it, to be used for his evil work. And he uses these false teachers. They're all around us. This last thought, and we'll finish. I think most in this room, and even in our church that would be here on a given Sunday morning, you love when false teaching is confronted. The problem is, it's kind of like this, sick them, pastor, and then you duck behind me, okay? Or after church quietly, I agreed with what you just said. You just called out something, and, but I'm asking you to actively participate in it yourself. And I'm saying, I need to do it when I'm not standing here. Are we standing against false teaching? That place of, of consistency and conviction is where we will find the stability we need in our families, in our church, in our world. When's the last time you said no to something that was false? When's the last time you said no to something that was conveniently carnal? Are we willing and able to do that for the glory and honor of God? Here's the question we're done. We allow God to ground you. We allow him to ground you with these condemnations. First of the prophets, those that are espousing it. And number two, would you be willing to see the portraits of those who've chosen to reject truth? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight.